Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Dennis, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Liver Cancer Treatment Updates. And today's program is supported by ISI Inc. and GlaxoSmithKline, and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have over 200 participants on today's program, and you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Colombia, India, Iraq, Lithuania, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. So it really is a global call. And it's a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now I'm going to introduce our first speaker. I'm delighted to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Ahmed Kassab, and he is John E. and Dorothy J. Harris Professorship in Gastrointestinal Cancer Research, Tenured Professor and Director, Hepatocellular Carcinoma Program, Director MD Anderson, HCC Spore, Editor-in-Chief, Journal of Hepatocellular Carcinoma, Department of Gastrointestinal Medical Oncology, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Kassab will be addressing overview of liver cancer, including current standard of care in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu, new treatment approaches, and the role of radioimmunization. And it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kassab. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure. I'm very honored to have been invited this year and the last few years as well. It's usually our preferred communication venue with our patients and their families. So. Thank you all uh, for um, arranging this. Um, so uh, today I'll be um, talking to you about overview of um, liver cancer, standard of care, um, also uh, talk a little bit about you know, the um, current environment of COVID and flu season, and then also um, uh, get into new treatment approaches that emerged during the last year um, and also uh, end up with um, a specific localized therapy procedure that a lot of uh, um, um, patients and their families expressed interest in learning about, which is radioembolization. Um, so um, first off, regarding overview of um, liver cancer, um, when it comes to liver cancer, we always call it a, a two-disease state, meaning that we almost always have uh, two diseases in one. In one hand, we have the cancer, and the other hand, we have the underlying chronic liver disease that led to cancer in the first place, and that in some cases would be known hepatitis, hepatitis B or hepatitis C. In other cases would be known uh, cirrhosis or scarring tissue of the liver. And then the, um, also lately we have been seeing more and more patients with what we call metabolic syndrome, meaning patients with um, any three of the following five risk factors, obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, 
uh, high triglyceride or um, low-density lipoprotein, so uh, high cholesterol, obesity, diabetes, and hypertension. So as you can tell, that's a significant number of uh, patients globally, and that's what we call metabolic syndrome. It leads to fatty liver and then eventually scarring of the liver and, and then cancer. And when it comes to the type of liver cancer, um, majority of the cases are what we call hepatocellular carcinoma or uh, liver cell cancer and the others are the rest of it is bile duct cancer or what we call cholangiocarcinoma so um, hepatocellular carcinoma is the most common um, this is the one that we will be discussing heavily today and um, standard of care is uh, very straightforward like any other cancer if there is a room for um, cutting it out by doing surgery. This is always the best option. And if the liver has got um, scarring tissue that would limit our ability to do surgery, then we go for liver transplant. And for liver transplant to happen, we have to have small um, liver tumors, either one tumor less than five centimeters or three less than three centimeters, because otherwise the risk of the cancer coming back is high. So um, we're talking about um, 15 to 20% of patients who could upfront if the cancer was discovered early on, could go for either resection to cut the tumor out, remove it surgically, or liver transplant if um, the liver is, um, uh, has got a lot of scarring tissue and surgery is not feasible and we have to replace the whole organ. But again, this is minority of patients, unfortunately, 15 to 20%. And then those patients who have small liver tumors but not amenable, and they cannot go for surgery or transplant, then in that case we go for localized therapies. And that could be ablation um, with different forms. We can do it with heat, what we call radiofrequency ablation, to heat it up and um, um, destroy the tumor, or could be with cold uh, probes, which is cryoablation, or could be alcohol. So there are several, several method, methods of doing the ablation to destroy the small tumors up to three centimeters. Beyond that, you know, up to seven centimeters, we go for what we call transarterial chemoembolization, or um, the um, uh, you know, make it taste, T A. So taste is reserved for those patients with uh, tumors that are small, but not small enough to get the burning with the ablation. And in that case, it's like having a heart cath. We go from the groin up, but instead of going to the heart, we go to the liver, and through the artery itself feeding the tumor, we can inject chemotherapy, and that's why we call it transarterial chemoembolization or taste. If we inject radiation beads, Radiation beads are going to be called yttrium 90, Y-T-T-R-I-U-M-90, yttrium 90. So this is uh, what we call radio embolization or yttrium 90, and we're going to talk a little bit about it at the end of my um, um, talk. Um, so this is the localized therapy. Very small tumors we go for the burning with the ablation, and then a little bit bigger with the chemoembolization, and then uh, bigger than that, or multiple tumors, we do the radioembolization because we inject radiation spheres so patients and the liver tolerate it better. And then finally, for those patients who have more advanced tumors, 
so they are not small enough to undergo localized therapy. They cannot be um, taken care of surgically. Uh, in these cases, with advanced tumors, you know, invading majority of the liver or the portal vein or uh, metastasizing outside the liver, stage four, going from the liver to other organs. In that case, we go for systemic therapies. And for systemic therapies, it's either by vein or by mouth. And we do have a lot of those drugs, you know, approved in the last few years. And the uh, two big categories um, here are either immunotherapy, which is basically intravenous drugs to stimulate our own immune cells to attack the tumors, and that's how we can control the tumors and prevent them from growing or spreading. And this could be done with um, immunotherapy alone, with two drugs combined, or immunotherapy and other drugs, we call them targeted therapy, and those are either pills or IV, and they target the blood vessels supplying the tumors to cut them off. And in that case, um, they help and synergize the activity of the immunotherapy. And most of the currently approved agents are either related to uh, the targeted therapy, either pills or intravenous, or immunotherapy, or both. So that way we can give two drugs uh, by uh, intravenous route, and there are studies now doing one intravenous, one pill for, and um, lately we had just a few months ago two drugs approved intravenously to target immunotherapy, so meaning that they stimulate our own immune cells to attack the tumors. So um, we do have multiple therapeutic strategies for patients who are not candidates for surgery, and in that case, could be done um, intravenously or pill form um, to control the tumors. And if the tumors are not responding uh, to a, a single agent or a regimen, then we switch to the other one. Um, and we always advise our patients to be in um, good shape in terms of nutrition and exercise and so on. So that way, these drugs can work better and patients can tolerate them better. So this is the standard of care in terms of, you know, small tumors, when can we do surgery for them or transplant, and then if we could not, we go for localized therapies. We talked about the different modalities, and then uh, more advanced disease, we go for systemic therapy, intravenous or pills, and we talked about the different mechanism of action and so on. Um, and it's a very exciting time because even um, uh, three years ago, we didn't have many of the agents. We now have many agents, several agents approved, and just two of them approved in the last couple of months. So now uh, let's quickly talk about, you know, what what does it mean for us to be living, you know, in the era of um, those um, um, seasonal exposure of our patients to flu and COVID and so on. Of course, COVID is not like a year ago or even six months ago, but we always, you know, advise. Thank you so much, Dr. Kassab. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. James Harding. Uh, Dr. Harding is, attend is assistant attending gastrointestinal oncology service, early drug development service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, assistant professor of medicine, while Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Harding will continue um, to discuss um, the radioimmunization and clinical trial updates, how research increases your treatment options, controlling symptoms, side effects, discomfort, and pain, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up appointments, and quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. 
it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Harding. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here uh, and to follow up where Dr. Kassab had left off. Um, he was speaking simply, um, too, about COVID-19 and its continued presence. Uh, this obviously has shifted a bit in that um, we now have vaccines for it and it tends to be mild. Uh, so when interacting with your provider, please always let them know if you're feeling ill um, and for that management. Uh, Dr. Kassab has, was also going to speak about radioembolization. Um, as he already noted, radioembolization is a form of regional therapy that is used to treat liver cancer that remains in the liver and this cannot be removed with surgery and or transplant. Radioembolization is a complicated technique that is used widely for the treatment of liver cancer. It involves feeding a catheter to the blood vessels um, that feed the liver tumor um, and delivering uh, particles that have um, a small radioactive uh, molecule on them. Uh, and then over time, the particles deliver radiation directly to the tumor. Um, this um, is used in the treatment of liver cancer, um, and it, you may be a candidate for this. However, I always strongly recommend what's called a disease management team review um, at an academic center or a center of excellence for liver cancer to see if this is a potential use for you. Moving to my area of topic, which is clinical trials. Clinical trials are how we develop new therapies for liver cancers and other solid tumors. Um, and there are two general types of uh, clinical trial. One is a therapeutic study. The other um, may be um, an observational study or a translational-based uh, therapy um, um, uh, study. And so the latter is really where doctors are asking you for information about your cancer. They may be requesting samples like blood work or biopsies. Um, and this type of work is non-therapeutic in nature, but may help scientists and clinical trialists develop new therapies for your cancer in the long run. And this is always ongoing at any major medical oncology center. The uh, main way, though, we advance therapy is through therapeutic studies. This is when a new therapy is evaluated for the treatment of liver cancer. This can occur at every stage of disease. Uh, Dr. Kassab spoke about earlier stages of disease where surgery and transplant are being done or a local therapy called ablation is being used. He talked about intermediate stage where people are using embolization therapy with or without chemotherapy, with or without radiation. And then he talked about more advanced stages where people are using systemic or medicinal therapies, such as the combination immunotherapies. Um, he mentioned as well as pill-based therapies for liver cancer. Um, it's in clinical trials that are happening at each stage of the disease that we learn the best way to treat patients with, with a, a therapy. A phase one clinical study is the first time a medicine or procedure may be being used on a patient, and its primary goal is to understand the safety and schedule of this proposed new treatment. A phase two study is one where we know a drug may be safe and tolerable, but now we want to understand how much activity there is. And then a phase three study 
is really a randomized study where it's a flip of a coin as to determine which therapy one would receive, and that's done randomly uh, because we believe that each therapy is at least equally effective. Obviously, in those studies, we're hoping that the new therapy is better, and this is the reason why this is done. Um, these trials are of critical import because although there have been great advances in liver cancer over the last five to 10 years, the outcomes still need to improve and we need to have better ways to treat these cancers. So some examples of phase three studies that are ongoing right now um, comes from what Dr. Kassab has said. In the advanced setting, for example, um, many um, phase three studies recently resulted showing positive effects of new combination therapies. Um, these therapies are now used for patients with liver cancer that has spread out of the liver or we cannot, you know, treat with local therapies. Um, uh, now that we know these therapies work, we have several phase three clinical trials where we're pairing those therapies um, uh, with a regional therapy like um, embolization and Y90 to understand if we add these therapies, do patients do better? And so there are several phase threes like that across the country. In addition, there are phase three studies at earlier stages of disease that ask the question, if we give some of these therapies to somebody that has, for example, a resected tumor, um, can or a, one that was removed with surgery, will this prevent recurrence? There are a number of phase one and two studies that are looking at novel therapies. A lot of these therapies are looking to make the immune system see liver cancer better. Some would say that liver cancer is like moderately susceptible to an immune attack, and we want to make that better by using a variety of new therapies such as vaccines, small molecules, um, T-cell or adoptive cellular therapy, and others. And so this is really the scope of care on clinical trials. Uh, many academic centers and centers of excellence for liver cancer have these, and um, you can also go to clinicaltrials.gov, which is um, an NC, you know, it's a website that lists all trials in the United States. Um, moving to kind of the next portion of my talk, you know, while one is undergoing the care for liver cancer, there may be symptoms related to liver cancer itself, or as well as symptoms related to the many treatments. Uh, that we now have for liver cancer. It's always really of critical importance to, you know, be, you know, when you see your provider um, to give them a notification of those symptoms. Um, and, you know, there are many things that can be done to manage symptoms. Um, and, you know, these may be um, symptoms that are physical in nature, such as pain, uh, where we have supportive and palliative doctors that can help manage this. Um, extra fluid on the body, like ascites or swelling in the legs. We work closely with hepatologists for diuretic management in this regard. Um, sometimes even confusion can occur uh, where hepatologists really do help in co-managing uh, patients with liver cancer. Uh, and then there are non-physical um, uh, uh, you know, symptoms, but financial side effects, for example. So treating liver cancer um, does come with expense that insurance may or may not cover. 
uh, there'll be others that will discuss this, but um, there are many programs at academic centers, community centers, through pharmaceutical companies that may be able to reduce the cost and price of specific drugs and may be able to guide patients um, so that they um, may have a more optimal experience uh, with regard to their treatment and symptoms. Uh, finally, um, I just make a very small side uh, aspect about telehealth. You know, telehealth still continues in this day, and, you know, it, it's really um, a useful venue to see patients sometimes more frequently. You know, for this, it's always useful as possible to have your cameras, your, you know, your phones and you know, computers set up adequately. And if you don't, you call the office that treats you to, to help you with this regard. Um, in addition, due to the CARES Act and others, you do have access to see your medical chart um, and review all records almost in real time. Most of us find this really important and, and useful. You know, always keep notes and bring them to your provider so you can talk with them in person. I thank very much the Cancer Care uh, for the invitation, as well as to the prior speakers and those after me, um, and, and, and best uh, again to all. Thank you so much. Very comprehensive, and um, so appreciate your speaking on today's program. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Verdon, and Ms. Verdon is an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. DeBakey, Ms. I'm sorry, Ms. Verdon will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Um, so nutrition and hydration are essential, not only to the tolerance to your treatment, but your quality of life, how you feel, your energy level, um, and as we've heard today, there's a lot of different treatments for liver cancer. And so um, throughout your course of treatment, um, you may experience different side effects just based on whatever your journey looks like. Um, a dietitian can meet with you and discuss how to modify your diet based on the unique treatment that you're going to be going through and then your unique side effects. Um, it's very important to recognize that you know, although there's um, some expected side effects that a patient might experience, not all patients experience the exact same side effects from treatment. And so it's very important that you know what your unique needs are. Now, some possible side effects you might experience um, are things like a decreased appetite. You may experience um, a feeling of reflux or indigestion or actually have reflux and indigestion. Um, filling full quickly is very common for patients. Um, sometimes nausea, constipation is a common side effect I see a lot. Um, some patients have diarrhea and sometimes vomiting and then weight loss kind of goes hand in hand with some of these side effects just depending on um, um, how extensive they are and how much intake you're able to consume. Um, but again, a dietitian is part of the healthcare team, so talking with your doctor about meeting with your dietitian um, not only can help you with the side effects that you're experiencing in, in modifying your diet, but also giving you some specificity in like your calorie and protein and fluid needs. Um, these, these unique um, components can change based on the type of treatment that you go through, and so um, it's important to just keep in touch with your dietitian throughout your cancer journey. Now, typically, there's an increased need for protein with patients um, undergoing treatment for liver cancer. 
Um, and so that might be a common conversation you have with your dietitian um, is related to sources of protein, which are animal proteins are, um, are very common, things like eggs, cheese, yogurt, chicken, tuna, um, any type of fish actually or seafood. Um, and then there's some non-animal protein sources, um, things like tempeh, tofu, um, beans, peas, and lentils. And so um, communicating with your healthcare team is the key. You know, if you notice that your appetite's decreasing, if you notice that you haven't, you know, had a bowel movement in um, kind of on your normal schedule um, or you're feeling nauseous, talk to your healthcare team very quickly. Don't wait on these side effects because if you're experiencing them, um, it might be um, pretty impactful on your intake and your overall quality of life. So in general, what we look for when we talk about nutrition planning is we want you to avoid significant weight loss. It's important because when you lose weight during this time of treatment, typically you're losing muscle, you're not losing fat. And I have a lot of patients tell me all the time, oh, I've got 15 pounds to lose or I've been working on this, can't get this 20 pounds off, now I'm getting it off. But it's not the kind of weight loss that you're looking for. This is a different kind of weight loss that can reduce your lean muscle mass. It can actually increase your weakness and fatigue and increase your risk for falls. It can also delay your wound healing and possibly your treatment. So, you know, it's so important that you recognize that walking in, that nutrition is a huge component um, during your treatment. It's just as, as important as um, a lot of other aspects of your treatment. Now, there are medications to assist, to assist with side effects, and so this is where talking with your healthcare team is so important. Make sure you understand how to take your medication. Um, this is something that, that can be very overwhelming. It's confusing at times, um, especially for things like nausea, constipation, um, you know, knowing to take, when to take these uh, medications and how to take them are very, very important. So um, make sure you have a good understanding of that. And if you're still experiencing the side effects, ask the doctor or nurse or whoever you're meeting with that day to review how to take the medication so that you have um, some clarity in that in case there's any miscommunication. Hydration's another thing that we overlook sometimes. We're so focused on calories and protein and making sure your weight's stable that um, hydration can get lost in the mix. And when you're not very hungry or you're feeling full, um, oftentimes just eating can be a lot. But hydration is so important. And um, a lot of pain medications can um, make you feel drowsy, have you sleeping more frequently. And so oftentimes getting up and eat, maybe not drinking as frequently throughout the day can be, um, can be something people struggle with. But what we want to aim for each day um, is between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day, so 64 to 80 ounces minimally. Now, you can drink fluids that have calories in them, and they still are considered hydrating. Things like milk, um, juice, um, even some nutrition supplements can be hydrating. Um, and so talk with your healthcare team about which is best for you and what you need to focus on. Um, so in closing, you know, there are several members of the healthcare team. The dietitian is just one of them, but um, we can really help support you through this time and ensure that you have a good understanding of what your nutrition needs are um, to help you tolerate your treatment better. 
um, I'm going to close there and uh, hand the line back over to Carolyn. Thank you so much, uh, Diana. That was really outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thanks so much. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Cassie Spector. And Ms. Spector is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. And she'll be discussing with you, communicating with your healthcare team about financial assistance and Cancer Care's free programs and services. And she'll go over our helpline number and our website as well with you. So it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Spector. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. My name is Cassie. I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling, support groups, educational workshops, community programs, publications, and limited financial assistance. To become connected to any of Cancer Care services, those interested can call Cancer Care's National Hope Line to speak with an oncology social worker. There are many aspects of a liver cancer diagnosis that may be addressed through psychosocial supportive services, making informed treatment decisions, quality of life concerns, and communication with one's medical team are important topics that can be discussed with an oncology social worker. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a supportive network may help relieve feelings of anxiety related to one's diagnosis. It could be beneficial to determine ways to approach these challenges that may surface. By calling Cancer Care's Hopeline, one of our social workers can help navigate ways to seek support services. On Cancer Care's website, cancercare.org, there is a wide array of reading material and information related to liver cancer. This includes publications about speaking to your medical team and coping with the cancer diagnosis as well as stories of help and hope through Cancer Care's podcast, Cancer Out Loud. Upcoming and recorded Connect Education workshops like this one today can be found at cancercare.org connect, including several workshops specific to liver cancer. As Dr. Harding mentioned, people diagnosed with liver cancer may experience practical and financial concerns through one's treatment. Unfortunately, financial concerns may be a source of continuing stress. When diagnosed and throughout treatment, it may be helpful to discuss any financial or practical concerns with your medical providers. Often people are uncomfortable talking to their healthcare team about these financial concerns or practical needs. However, your healthcare team is very accustomed to these conversations and can help ensure you have access to the treatments that you need. It may also be helpful to connect with a social worker, patient navigator, as well as the financial department at the treatment center to see if there are any financial options available to you. Please know if you are encountering any financial hardships, there are organizations that may be able to help you. Cancer Care offers resource navigation services nationally in English and in Spanish to patients, post-treatment survivors, and caregivers affected by cancer. We offer short-term strength-based approach to resource navigation where the social worker or resource navigator will work with the client to connect them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. Additionally, to find local organizations that can help you, you can visit cancercare.org slash helping hand. This guide allows you to search by zip code and diagnosis to find a list of national and local organizations and what they can assist with. If you are interested in learning more about the support services that we offer, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line 
at 800-813-4673 to speak with one of our oncology social workers. It has been such a pleasure to be part of this very informative program. Thank you for your attention and opportunity to speak today. And I will now turn it back to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Spectre. That was really outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation and lots of resources for people um, to call. And um, also I should mention to you that we have been mentioning a few other um, websites throughout the program and phone numbers. So all of that, when you get, you'll be getting a Survey Monkey from us in a couple of days. And when you get that Survey Monkey, it will include all the resources that Ms. Spectre mentioned and that were mentioned about clinical trials. And so anything like that, we're going to be sure that you have that in addition to having an, a, we'd like to fill out the evaluation, but also you'll have those resources spelled out for you. And now we're going to move right on to the Q&A. And um, I'm going to ask Dennis to bring all of our speakers on board for the Q&A, and we're going to take your questions. So, uh, Dennis. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. At this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Um, and we have quite a few questions here. I'm going to start with uh, Dr. Kaseb. Um, first question has to do about um, someone who's taken previous immunotherapy and wondered about uh, are there any newer immunotherapy or systemic therapies to try after um, therapies that may not have worked, um, systemic therapies to try, um, especially for those who have previously taken all of the older standard of care meds. Um, if you could comment on that, Dr. Um, yeah, that's Kassel. a great question. And this question is going to be, you know, coming up, you know, over and over in the next few years, uh, if not longer, because we do have approval um, for immunotherapy in hepatocellular carcinoma, either as single agent, so drugs that could be used alone after progression on frontline therapy, or in combination with other targeted therapy, as I mentioned, you know, drugs targeting the blood vessels, or even combination with other immunotherapies. So if the patient underwent um, treatment with uh, uh, one immunotherapy drug or a regimen that had only one immunotherapy drug, yes, uh, physicians always try to um, still do immunotherapy, but you have to use two immunotherapy drugs together or use a different kind of targeted therapy. So this is the era where, you know, you're really going to have to rely on your medical oncologist and the treating team discussing in a, 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 a team manner, you know, what's best for, for you based on the um, not only response but also tolerance. Um, if patients go through immunotherapy, they don't handle it well, we try to avoid it. So it's a, a mutual decision between the physician and the patient based on um, tolerance issues, quality of life issues experienced on the first uh, immunotherapy regimen, and that will dictate what to change to. But there is always opportunities for combination strategies in these settings. Excellent. And um, another question um, is concentric, and for Dr. Kassab, is concentric and Avasta now being actively um, issued for treatment and together or alone? Yes, so the, this uh, combination came about about a couple of years ago, and then it was approved by the regulatory agencies in the U.S. and elsewhere, and it remains the um, 
um, one of the preferred choices for a treatment. Both of them are IV. One is immune uh, intravenous, I mean. One is immunotherapy, and the other one is targeted therapy to um, uh, cut the blood supply to the tumor. So this regimen is still very active, and we usually use it in treatment-naive patients. So patients who start with any systemic therapy, this is usually our you know, one of our preferred choices um, there. And even those patients who didn't receive this treatment and they received other pills or IV forms, there is always room to go back to this regimen uh, if their oncologist thinks that it's a good choice based on risk uh, profile, um, organ functions, and so on. But it is a good option even in those patients who did not start with it. And the question for um, Dr. Kassab, can liver cancer return if you get a liver transplant? So after liver transplant, the data showed that the risk of the tumor recurrence is 5 to 10 percent, you know, depending on um, the original uh, tumor status. So those tumors that were, you know, uh, very large, for example, or um, had some invasion into a vessel when they took the liver out, they saw that there are some risk features that you know um, uh, could um, dictate uh, the recurrence um, uh, time and all of that, but you know always transplant teams they work in a team manner with the medical oncologist and the rest of the team to make sure that the risk that the risk of recurrence is minimal. Um, so yes, there is a risk, but in, if if it is done properly, the risk is very low. Excellent. And a question again from one of our participants, um, for Dr. Kaseb. When a patient does great on immunotherapy, um, but it fails after a year, say a year, an example, will you uh, still try another immunotherapy in combination? In what circumstances will you not retry immunotherapy? So I would not retry immunotherapy if, you know, a patient uh, had been on two immunotherapy drugs at the same time. So if we used uh, dual um, drugs uh, targeting immunotherapy, uh, because otherwise you're left with uh, single-agent drugs, which wouldn't make um, uh, a lot of sense, or another dual, and the two dual combination strategies for immunotherapy, they work very similarly. So that's the one situation where, you know, I don't continue with immunotherapy if patients just received two drugs of immunotherapy together. Uh, another scenario where I try to avoid immunotherapy if the patient experienced severe side effects related to immunotherapy. But if the patient tolerated immunotherapy well and only used one drug, there is room to continue with immunotherapy either in combination or using another targeted therapy with immunotherapy. And in this setting, we also have single-agent drugs, pills, that we can use approved for liver cancer, just single drug um, in the oral form. So there are options for those patients who progress on frontline, even if immunotherapy was used. Thank you. And another question um, for Dr. Kassab. Um, does your liver regrow from partial um, um, removal of the liver? Yes. In general, the short answer is yes, and depends on how healthy the liver is. So the regeneration will be dependent on the degree of the um, scarring of the liver. If the liver is very healthy, then um, you get the regrowth faster and to a bigger extent. 
And that's why, in general, after surgery or you know even transplant, we still follow our patients closely with the regular um, imaging schedule to make sure that we watch their liver very closely. Well, this is a question from our participants. Um, can someone with liver cancer still drink alcohol? We uh, don't advise it in general because of the injury related to the alcohol drinking on the liver, uh, not only the cancer but the normal liver around it. And most of our patients have underlying liver injury and liver disease, and the liver functions are not uh, very normal in majority of patients. We always advise our patients to avoid anything toxic to the liver, including alcohol drinking. Excellent. Um... And um, Ms. Bearden, could you say a bit more about um, diet after a um, after having a transplant? Yeah, so this is a good question. In general, not only after. Tra oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, yeah, absolutely. I, I just, as far as the nutrition side goes, um, you know, we we talk with patients about food safety, um, especially after a transplant. And so it's about cooking foods to certain temperatures, um, avoid eating in common areas such as buffets, potlucks, things like that. Um, there's also, we give information about storage of food in the refrigerator. We want vegetables and, um, and, and, and uh, fruits and stuff at the top of the refrigerator. Keep your meats and, and other um, um, animal products at the bottom in case they leak we don't want things to be contaminated in the refrigerator um you know with immunosuppressive drugs um you know your immune system is is suppressed so your body will not reject the organ and so um it puts you it's a special place where we just have to be very careful when it comes to food safety um also after a liver transplant you know there's healing that happens so um, based on your unique needs, some people are, you know, struggling with other comorbidities such as diabetes or some other things. Um, you know, there might be some diet modifications based on medications that you're given post-transplant. Um, sometimes we see patients who have challenges with blood sugars after post-transplant, um, and so there might be some, some modifications diet-wise with that. Protein is always an important component as far as the healing um, of, you know, from a post-surgical, from a surgical intervention and maintaining hydration is very important. So those are a few things that we would definitely touch on um, post-transplant as far as nutrition goes. And Dr. Kassab, did you want to add something to that? No, this is great. And uh, I was going to also say that this is uh, true regardless what kind of therapy we end up doing, whether surgery or transplant. Um, or, you know, even systemic therapy with those intravenous drugs because it's always critical to have good nutrition and that will always stimulate our own immune cells. Um, so quality of life in terms of um, uh, nutrition and exercise are always um, great no matter what kind of treatment we do. So I reiterate what Diana said 100%. Excellent. And an inspector, a question for you about um, the support groups, if you could say a bit more about um, the support groups you may have for people with liver cancer and just what services we offer them. Yeah, of course. Um, so we offer support groups both for patients and for caregivers. 
Um, so nationally, we offer online support groups, and these are online message board groups that are password protected and led by oncology experts um, and so oncology social workers. Um, so what you can do is if you are interested, you can go onto our website, cancercare.org, and you'll see um, on our website support groups, and you'll be able to see the whole list of online support groups that we do offer. We also do offer live support groups for sure on Zoom, but those are only limited to patients and caregivers in New York and New Jersey. Um, so if you are interested in any of our support groups, you can go onto our website and see exactly what we do offer. And we do offer a lot of national support groups as well, so just be aware of that as well. Um, and I actually um, want to just thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal on today's call. It's been an amazing call. Um, and I do want to comment on the fact that there are lots of uh, questions that we have uh, yet to answer, so I want to comment on that too. There's a lot of, a lot of questions for today's program. Um, and so we will be doing another program, of course, in the future, but I just want to say that for those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, or for those of you who actually are um, thinking of a question to ask, please take what you've learned today back to your treating healthcare team, because they know you the best, they have all your records, and they'll be able to, of course, address your questions. Also, we don't want anyone to leave the call today feeling that you're alone. We want you to now know that you're part of the community of support, and you can contact Cancer Care and your healthcare team with any questions or concerns that you may have. And also, please check with your healthcare team access to them evenings, weekends, and holidays. Those seem to be the time when things seem to be, their problems often seem to crop up at those times. So please be sure that you know who to call during those times. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.